1: I'd just seen some pictures of Florida and it looked like a completely other planet to me and it seemed so vivid and strange. The dress sense of some of the people who live there and the sort of very vivid blue sky and the palm trees and and it seemed to suit that world of farmer reps who were pushing beyond the boundaries to get what they needed to get.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year, and we are breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and guess who's back? Our resident Oscars expert Joey Nolfi is healed. He has returned. Hello, how
2: are you? I was on the road to recovery, and then when I heard you and Patrick talking about Oppenheimer, I quickly became Mm -hmm. sick again, and I'm still sick. Sick of this film. Jared, I I just, I got fidgety in the theater. I could not wait for it to be over, but I can't wait to talk with you about the Oscars today.
0: Uh, yeah, so how about this first? Um, I'll tell folks who's on the episode today. Um, this guy has directed some of the biggest movies of recent history from the wizarding world David Yates. Uh, He helmed the last four Harry Potter movies and all three of the Fantastic Beasts films and now Yates is going back to his roots uh, with a very personal and stylized story in the world of Big Pharma uh, for the film Pain Hustlers, which stars Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. Um, This is a Netflix movie. It is inspired by a true story. The company, the drug, and the character names, though, have all been changed and uh, he dives into all of that and explains how this story is different from others you may have watched in recent years set in the pharma industry uh, in my interview with him coming up a little bit later. All right. So with that out of the way, Joey, are you ready for it? Let's get into the biggest movie <laughs> in all the land right now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like the pun? We're talking about Taylor Swift, the heiress tour concert film. Um yeah, you know me. I've got to work in a pun wherever I can. Yes, Dad. Yes, you do. Yes. Does that <laughs> like does, is that like bad blood for you if I use puns? Oh my god. Okay. Well, you're
2: referencing. Okay, so <laughs> I I will accept this because you are referencing like one of her only songs that I actually enjoy. So I'll allow it.
0: I will allow it. All right. Great. Oh. <laughs> Test passed. Um anyway, so this um this this <laughs> concert film, I'm being very uh, careful to call it a concert film because it is not yeah. being uh classified as a documentary, but folks are chattering online, especially since it's debut last oh, weekend. Yes, they about are. whether yeah, about whether this could be a best picture nominee. Uh mm-hmm. I mean, I I I'm just gonna let you take it away and break that down for us.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I remember I I saw something last week. This day should go down in history. Um, it, let's just say it deeply disturbed Jared to the core uh, that there was chatter about <laughs> the Aerostore film being potentially in the running for best picture. And it led to a, a very pleasant conversation between us.
0: And, were, like, these, make... were these Swifties saying this? Were these pundits? No. I need to know more.
2: Oh, it was like, so I, there's a handful of very tuned in Oscar watchers that I have been watching for years uh, back in my days of, you know, having my own independent Oscars blog. And these were the people who were talking about it. And then I started looking into it and I was like, oh, there actually are a lot of people that are talking about this and make no mistake. I am in no way advocating for this film to get a nomination if we're going to talk about personal preference here I would prefer to never hear about Taylor Swift ever again but people think that oh that's a whole topic for a whole other podcast but People think or a therapy session. Be- I'm not sure which. <laughs> I think people who, who who are dancing around like the uh, midsummer maypole dance in the theater for the Taylor Swift era <laughs> store are the tour that are the ones that need therapy. Um, oh but gosh, people think that because of its sort of business might, Taylor's relevance to the overall yeah. cultural and pop culture landscape and her pure economic power as a business in herself reviving local economies and hospitality yeah. sectors in every city her tour visits, that this film could be an easy business decision to like shoot in as a Best Picture nominee. And I can see the path. I can see people Celebrating her direct deal with the theater distributors versus or with the theater uh, companies or the owners instead of the studios as a business decision, like lifting her up. But there is this weird question of eligibility. And right.
0: right. What, what do we know from various sources about that? So
2: our sources tell us that the film is not actually ineligible simply on the merits of it being a quote-unquote concert film Mm -hmm. that if the film is submitted, the branch makes the determination on its eligibility. So it
0: could... The the documentary branch does.
2: The documentary branch would... You know, we we still have no idea if it was or was not submitted. But if it was, it would be the documentary branch that would be making that determination on whether or not... It is eligible because there are certain exceptions that go beyond what is sort of outlined in the Academy rules. So we still have no idea what is going on with that. But also the general entry for submissions outside of Best Documentary Feature are uh, slated for November 15th. So the film could be submitted and could technically contend for Best Picture and other categories if it is submitted there. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that just because it couldn't be nominated for documentary feature doesn't mean it can't contend for other things right. I, I, but it has to be submitted so i just i I just don't think at this point it's something to really bet on. I, mm-hmm. I like Taylor was very hardcore campaigning for the all too well short film, and even that couldn't break in to get a nomination, which seemed like a more attainable nod for her so I don't know. It just depends on if it makes those long lists, I guess, that the Academy usually puts out every year at the end of the year, saying these are like the 400 films that are eligible for Best Picture. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, it's it it, it gets really interesting. Like we're saying, seems unlikely, not out of the question, I guess. Uh, I mean, look, I'm not a member of the Academy. I'm not a documentary filmmaker, but I'm sitting here thinking, you know, why does a documentary have to just be something that is like, a story about a person or an event or a time in history, because this is documenting her concert. Uh, It is high production value. Uh, You know, a lot went into uh, documenting her heiress tour. So I'm looking at it from that perspective. Documentaries, by the way, are called films and this is a concert film. So I don't know. I I, I guess I feel like if it should be anywhere, it should be in the documentary category because it is, documenting a live event, um, but, you know, finite the yeah, rules I, and it gets into, you know, things that the folks in that branch will, I'm sure, debate if it even gets submitted.
2: Yeah, I guess it's like you can look at it compared to the way that the Emmys or even TV differentiates like docu-series or variety series or reality competition series. I mean, they're, they're all real life to a certain extent. They're not scripted to a certain extent but i think the difference with a concert film is that con- and that's why i think it's up to the branch to make the determination because there are some concert films like madonna's truth or dare that you i guess you could say as a concert film that definitely leans more into like a behind the scenes unstaged documentary same thing with like the Selena Gomez document which actually was by the same filmmaker or like Gaga five foot two these are films that are documenting music and performances but and also there was like a Jennifer Lopez documentary on HBO a few years ago that I actually thought was really good Um, Beyonce's homecoming there there but I think with a more straightforward concert film the the area becomes a little bit clearer for people making that determination if it is solely documenting a concert film that is a sort of pre-planned mapped out presentation like it would be the same as almost i guess if you were like saying like the hamilton documentary that came out on disney Mm -hmm. plus that was just playing basically the stage version of of hamilton so it's it's the same thing i guess
0: yeah yeah I, I'm right there with you. um, well, I mean, I guess the the big takeaway here, or uh, perhaps the 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 warning that we should put out is if this film is not nominated, uh I, I just hope fans shake it off quickly <laughs> <laughs> You were really fearless with that one. oh, thank you, thank you. Were you a mm-hmm. lover of that pun? Got oh my it. God. All right. <laughs> you just, I can do this all day. I can do this all I day. I okay, know you could. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we'll we'll just end that part of the discussion there. Um, taking a very hard left turn. Uh, it, Taylor's obviously something that's very current, but I want to take a step back in uh, into the past of, of 2023. Which movies from the first half of this year, pre-Barbenheimer, do you think currently stand the best chance at a nomination? Or I'll go so far as to say should be nominated.
2: Yeah. I, I think, yeah, out of the obvious ones that we have discussed already, Barbie Oppenheimer, Past Lives, of course, past lives I'm still really pulling for. That's my favorite thing of the year so far. Uh mm-hmm. I actually would like to take a look at some of the other races that could have some very high profile contenders like animated feature. I think is going to be very interesting Ooh. this year. And we saw uh-huh, two uh-huh, movies uh-huh. from earlier this year that I think could make a big impact on that race, which would be the Super Mario Bros. movie. And just because of the box office and the sheer popularity of that thing. And also um, Elemental, which was the new Pixar movie, which didn't necessarily get, I think, it it started, it had a rough start at the box office, which I think there's a whole separate issue of, you know, Disney sort of conditioning its audience to just wait for Disney+. And I think that's probably why Elemental sort of underperformed at the domestic box office. But in the long run... It did, I think, make over $400 million globally. So, I mean, it's, it was a hit film globally. And I watched it for the first time, actually, the other day. And I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And it has mm-hmm. an amazing score. It has... Yeah. The animation in the movie is incredible. The voice acting is great. I think that this is a real contender for animated features. So, I think that we should be on the lookout for that one.
0: Uh, I'd love to throw another one in on animated feature. Uh, Nimona. On Netflix, oh, yeah. I absolutely loved that film. Uh, I if folks have not too, seen it, yeah. I highly encourage you to check it out. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, just wanted to throw in. That Definitely,
2: one. that's going to be an interesting category this year too. Because then coming up, we have the Miyazaki movie, which I, Boy in the Heron, I, I think is kind of lower tier Miyazaki. I mean, I think there are some elements of that that uh, do speak to a sort of more philosophical slash emotional tie to a filmmaker sort of acknowledging that he's in the Twilight phase of his life that I think are very powerful towards the end of that film. Uh, but the overall film, I think, is kind of lower lower tier Miyazaki. Uh, but we'll see how that how that race plays out. But I actually, okay. So stay with me on this next mm-hmm. one, Jared. I know you're going to roll okay. your eyes. Um, visual effects. Okay. I want to think outside the box here. Megan? for visual effects. Oh, my God.
0: Bring it all day. Give Megan all the nominations. Yes! I could see it. I I really,
2: really could see Megan getting a visual effects nomination. Uh, It... I mean, what they had to do, combining that dancer's body with the actual Megan... Uh, you know, I don't know how Facade, much the whatever. Heard, pers- yeah, <laughs> pers- yeah, I don't know how much the percentage is. Uh, what's actually the dancer's body versus the visual effects overlay? But I imagine that was not easy to do throughout the whole film. So, I would love to see Megan get a visual effects nomination, and um, also costume design and production design. I think we have to look at things like Indiana Jones, um, mm-hmm. Asteroid mm-hmm. City for sure production design absolutely absolutely. Mm -hmm. as much as i you know wes anderson films are another thing that just annoy me to no end but like i mean production design it's always kind of a safe bet there and you know i'm a disney parks person but Uh haunted mansion for costume design Uh and production design i there I i think that's a real contender there
0: yeah, now that you say it, the production design on that film—not now that you say it. When I watched it, I knew it was great, but now that you say it, I—I I, I hadn't had it in my mind as a potential contender. But yeah, definitely not out of the question there. Yeah, because they really—the even- way they brought the, the com- combined the parks, both Disneyland and Disney World, and also uh, one of the international locations. Right, uh, there are some nods. I.
2: Don't believe so. I believe that Crump Manor is modeled after Disney World's version, and then mm-hmm. the Gracie Manor is like an exact replica of the the exterior of the Disneyland version. And right. they recreated so much. Yeah. And that a lot yeah. of the in, in the interviews I did with Justin Simeon uh he said how important it was for him to actually as much as they could physically construct do physical effects instead of computer imagery obviously there's a lot of computer generated imagery here but um things like tiffany haddish when she's on the sort of doom buggy going through the house that's all real that is all practical so it was and that's why the budget i think was so high for this movie and i think it really paid off that movie is very visually stunning the even the cinematography in that movie with doing that weird sort of fish eye lens but it's like kind of ghostly the paranormal stuff going around all in the the ends of that uh the frame there it's just it's a very aesthetically advanced stunning movie um so i think that haunted mansion disney would be wise to push that in a lot of technical categories because i think it could get nominations
0: well, hopefully they're listening to you right now. Um, another movie from earlier this year, which is is, is certainly part of the conversation, but uh, you know, Air is one of those. Uh, the the Michael Jordan. Oh. Oh, already making noises there about that one of uh, the Michael Jordan film uh, that that barely stars Michael Jordan, um, but directed by Ben <laughs> Affleck and co-starring Ben Affleck, along with Matt Damon, Viola Davis, Jason Bateman, Chris Messina. Uh, I think the cast is just fantastic. Um, but this week, the Gotham Awards announced that air. Uh, Will be giving uh, this is a brand new award the Gotham Visionary Icon and Creator Tribute uh, <laughs> honor to Ben Affleck. Um, how uh, how significant is this, if at all? I mean the fact that they created something brand new and he's getting
2: okay. So Ben Affleck shows. Full feet in a movie for the low ticket price of twelve dollars, and they create an entire <laughs> category for him at the Gotham Awards. Like this is the Ben Affleck foot fetishist movie, and
0: I, so,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the Gotham Awards are just responding to the call. Um, no, I, I I think that. <sighs> Anytime post Argo Ben Affleck is involved in the awards conversation, I am automatically skeptical. I just don't know if anybody is willing or ready to bring him back into that conversation. Um, But Air, I think if there's going to be a film to do it, Air feels like it could be the one with the likeliest potential.
0: Why do you think the hesitation?
2: Um, just because I think he's... I, I, I mean, I think he's a great filmmaker. I do. I, I think that Argo, though, is my least favorite of his films, I will say. And it's just funny that that's the one that got the most attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's a great filmmaker. I just think that he's... Seen, it's going the same route as somebody like, I mean, for instance, Jennifer Lopez, um, where people see him as this sort of commercially viable star instead of necessarily a filmmaker who has achieved a lot and... Uh, has a lot of great accolades to his credit, so I, I just think that maybe they dismiss him sometimes as just being sort of like an A-list Hollywood player. And uh, now that he's gotten his his quote unquote due with Argo, they're kind of like, been mm. there, done that," and they don't feel the need to maybe pay as much attention to something like Air, which did get great mm-hmm. reviews, and he did get mm-hmm. um, you know good notices for his work here. So I think you said something interesting uh, when we were talking about this that. It feels like maybe it could be a SAG play for the ensemble. I could totally yeah. see that for sure.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, to me that that might be the big and best play for this film, uh, because yeah, yeah. that, that ensemble is yeah. fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not discounting it for, for Oscars, um, because you never know sometimes with this voting body, um, you know, they, they every now and then like to throw in a little surprise. Um, and and I think this cast is a beloved cast, so uh, I, I think yeah. it has things going for it in those regards that is going to keep it, uh, you know, in the eyes of the academy. It will remain um, very visible to them uh, for for those reasons. The Gotham's are a
2: nice intro to setting the stage for award season. I mean, it's kind of like everybody's excited; we're ready to start handing out mm-hmm. these awards and. So it's sort of like this signal of the start of things. However, uh, yeah, there there's less direct correlation because of their voting base. So right. But they have had crossover. I mean, last year, Everything Everywhere All at Once won Best Feature. Two years ago, or three years ago, Nomadland won. Marriage Story has won. Uh, it, Call Me By Your Name. I mean, Moonlight, these are all Oscar-winning films. So yes, there is a direct or or there is a pattern that the Mm -hmm. gothams can maybe signal but there's no real direct relation just because i think the voting bases are so different so yeah the, the gothams are definitely something to look out for whatever film wins best feature it would be wise to have that film in the conversation for your best picture predictions for sure
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, those will be handed out uh, in uh, November, right? So we have a little bit of time uh, still to wait Mm -hmm. there. Um, But yeah, for sure will be interesting to see uh, how they will truly kick off award season, uh, in terms of handing out awards. Um, so I believe all of our main business is behind us then. So Joey, how about this? We take a quick break and folks, when we come back, uh, David Yates, my interview with him, don't go anywhere. The awardist will be right back. Welcome back to The Awardist. This man has cast a spell on audiences for more than a decade as director of seven movies in the Wizarding World, and now David Yates has teamed up with Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, Andy Garcia, and Catherine O'Hara for Pain Hustlers. In this film, Blunt plays Eliza Drake. She's a single mom who is truly a hustler. She manages to get a job as a pharma sales rep and get a local doctor to prescribe this pain medication for cancer patients. From there, this company quickly grows, but behind the scenes, shade things are happening. And uh, to add some more drama onto it, Eliza's daughter is sick and she needs a very vital surgery. Uh, Throughout all of this, morals, ethics, legal sales tactics all come into question. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Here now is my interview with David Yates. David, here's where I want to start, because you have you've made Ah, uh, seven movies in the world of of Harry Potter and the, and the Wizarding World. Uh, you you ventured into the jungle for the Legend of Tarzan, um, but. Pain of Hustlers is so wildly opposite uh, those movies in so many ways. First among them that there are, of course, no creatures or spells or, uh, you know, a man raised by apes um, or a ton of visual effects. Was that really intentional on your part? Were you looking for something that was was very rooted in reality and and real life? Not that wizards aren't real life. People will come for me for that statement.
1: Uh, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I spent such a long time on green screen studios. Um, yeah. creating these massive environments and these crazy creatures. So um it was really going back to my roots. It's going way back. So before I was invited into J.K. Rowling's world and and wizards and all, all sorts like that, I I had a period in television. That's what got me on the radar of Hollywood. So all my television work, which was a very diverse body of work for about seven years, which included period dramas and thrillers and and those kind of things, they were they were kind of they brought me to the attention of Hollywood, and there wasn't a visual effects in, visual effect in sight. And so, the the beauty of Pain Hustlers for me was to come back to those roots, to come back to, you know, the most exciting thing in a scene is a, an authentic moment between two actors rather than a big special effect. So it was it was a welcome return to doing things that I'd done a lot of previous to entering the Harry Potter world.
0: Yeah, and of course there's no shortage of, uh, you know, drama here, uh, even though there are not, like I said, all, all those other things happening, <laughs> like we've seen those other movies. Um, you know, in, in recent years, we've had uh, the the limited series, Dope Sick, uh, also on um, Netflix, where people will be able to see this, is the series, uh, Painkiller, which is more of a fictionalized uh, account mm-hmm. of, of Purdue Pharma and, and OxyContin. But Pain Hustlers, your film is inspired, I want to emphasize, inspired by a true story, the names of the pharma company and, and some people have changed, um, NSYC, became xana uh even the location changed arizona to florida in the process of those changes how much did the actual story change
1: so the story i mean we focus on liza drake mm. who's the principal character so liza's a fictional character for us she she felt like a really wonderful way in to to explore the idea of farmer sales and what people do in the oral maze to make a buck and those previous stories, those previous dramas are all very, they're terrific, you know, they're very mm-hmm. sort of straightforward. Uh, and they look at so they look at the hierarchy of the story. We were I was really fascinated by the people who are in the in the thicket of this, the people on the front line. And um, I've always been fascinated by salespeople and what they do and the moral side of the farmer industry when they're sort of hustling to make money. So um we 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 changed elements of the story, obviously consistent to what Evan Hughes documented in his book, but we we had some, you know, we took some, we created Liza Drake, we created the relationship she has with her daughter, Phoebe, um, just as a way of allowing the audience to connect with a single character and carry us through the story.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you're so right about sales because gosh, I mean, I growing up, my dad did all kinds of sales. I think I um, got a bit of that that bug too. We did all kinds of fundraisers at school. It was always, it was a competition, you know, there's something really exciting about that. Um, And I love really how that is, uh, you know, taken into account here and, uh, uh, you know, dramatized. Um, As you mentioned, Liza being at the center of this, a single mom who's um, really driven by her, by her desperation, by her determination to provide for her daughter. Um, but she's also, I mean, she's full of charm and and street smarts, but she also has some incredible um, business acumen. Um, given those, like, so many layers uh, to this woman, did it take much convincing to get Emily Blunt to say yes and, and come on board, not just as a, the actress, but also producing? Do
1: you know, Emily loved the character and she loved the idea of this story. Uh, And I think what appealed to her more than anything was the fact that we were not taking a very straightforward approach to the story. It's a bit subversive. It's a bit naughty. It's kind of got some humour at play. And she said, you know what, David, I'm so sick of seeing leading female characters who have to be so honourable and straightforward. And what she loved about Liza Drake was Liza is, you know, she's sometimes a little bit shady to get the deal (laughs) done you know mm-hmm. and to sort of fulfill her ambition and she gets taken up by the by the sort of the whole roller coaster of it and i think what we both love about that character is the fact that liza is fallible ultimately and she's she sort of loses her way a little bit in the moral maze of it all and i think emily was excited by by creating that character for the audience to see a woman who's fallible and culpable and accountable for her actions and it's for both of us it was refreshing to sort of work in a world where you could have a character like that a human being like that a mother you know a daughter a sister who isn't perfect and but who in the end does the right thing she stands up, stands puts her hand up and said i did something bad and i did it for these reasons and I will held account to that. And that for me is probably the most interesting and moving part of the story, you know, in a world where, you know, in the rush to succeed, you know, rules in any business can be folded and bent a little bit, because if you're making a buck, it's okay. And, but for someone like Liza Drake to sort of say, I did something wrong by the end of this story, and I'll take, I'll take the hit for that was, was interesting to us. Yeah.
0: Well, and, the, you know, the anti heros journey is uh, it, it can often be a tricky one, too, because like you said, you, you also have to find that that element that makes them likable. And, and you you mm-hmm. don't condone their actions, but you understand their actions and understanding is uh, it's a really tricky thing sometimes. So in those regards, was there a lot of kind of uh, pouring over the script conversations with, you know, with Emily, with your writer, making sure like, OK, we're we're hitting all these these different beats to say okay yes you're doing this but look over here she's you know she's got this going on too with her daughter and you know the, that kind of stuff
1: yeah for sure i mean it was a it was a process we did multiple drafts as you always do with these things and wells tower the writer who who's writing i love he's so good with character and when we gave him the initial notes to say look we don't want any your vegetables drama because there's going to be a few of those <laughs> we want we want something that's more playful am i You know, our our approach was always, let's entertain the audience, let's bring them along for the ride, let's make it a roller coaster, and yet hopefully still move them by the end and inform them by the end. So it's that tightrope that we were on, ultimately. And uh, absolutely, we navigated Emily's arc, Liza Drake's arc, very carefully through the story to make sure that the audience could empathize and identify with. It was really interesting. Emily had a really story after we did our very first recruit screening, you know, we show the film to audiences really early just to get a sense of how it's playing. And she was on an aeroplane coming back from Los Angeles to New York. And she she wasn't at the screening. She was just in LA for a bit of business. And anyway, she was getting on board the aircraft and she was getting her bag into a into a luggage rack. And this guy came up, someone who worked on the aircraft, said, let me lift that up for you. And she popped it. he popped it in for her and said, oh, by the way, Liza Drake. And Emily said, I'm sorry. And he said, Liza Drake, I saw your film last night at a test screening. (laughs) uh, Which is how how fluky is that? And she said, What was the most amazing thing? He sort of said to me, You know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have fessed up to what you fessed up to. And he he so identified with the character and he's so connected with her as a real human being. It left a real impression on Emily that somehow, um, Liza Drake is kind of there's a bit of all of us in Liza Drake. ultimately. there's a bit of yeah, we're all fallible. We're all capable of, you know, sort of being pulled the wrong way if we're not careful. and 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 this guy who's on the plane lifting our luggage up said, "Look, I, I understand your journey, but I wouldn't have taken the hit for it
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's yeah. an interesting admission uh, on yeah. its own right there that he makes sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, you mentioned entertainment also inform. Uh, I want to know, we're going to come back to the inform part because there's some really fascinating stuff at play here. Uh, first, of all, I've got to ask you, Chris Evans, why was he your Pete?
1: I love, I love whenever you you take an actor who's known for a certain body of work and you you invert and turn it upside down. And he's so iconically recognized for playing the good guy in many ways. And I know he's sort of been working to sort of subvert that in other roles. So for me, it was just a, too much of a delight not to bring him in, you know, the, the, the guy we know who plays Captain America so, so, so beautifully and turn him into a sleepy farmer rep was, was really tempting. And I think he really enjoyed that journey. I think he really relished it and leaned into it and found layers and levels in it that were quite fun.
0: I was about to say exactly that, that it looked like he was having fun playing this guy. Like that that translates to the screen
1: yeah for sure and it's just you know any actor wants to stretch a different set of muscles all the time they always do and so that was in part sort of counter programming if you like but for chris and he's doing that all the time now he's stretching himself all the time so he um it was delightful to have him as part of the troupe
0: Well, it was also really delightful to watch Emily and Chris together. There's such a um, like a dance between them. And and I know like chemistry, it's one of those things people say, like, you either have it or you don't. It's very clearly here um, in this case. But it seems like also that the that the script really um, kind of accentuated that spark between them. Like, how did you go about capturing that within even your staging, the camera work, uh, your
1: direction? We wanted a, a relationship was almost like siblings, so ultimately not a romance. The romance thing, you know, we were encouraged initially. Why don't they kind of fall in love and that would be an interesting? But that felt wrong to me and to Wells and to Lawrence, our producer. I was more intrigued by these two overly ambitious, very transactional human beings who somehow connected simply because they had the same appetites for success, for validation. To be recognized, to get rich, and so uh, ultimately, that's what defines them together. And there is no romance, even though Brenner is always always feigning a desire for Liza. Ultimately, mm-hmm. they're two transactional human beings who are very sort of straightforward in terms of what they want and what they're after, and um. And they hit it off pretty well. Fairly, it was all on the page. It was easy to find whenever they were together, and um, yeah, I just, I just enjoyed the sort of siblingness of the relationship, uh, and ultimately how Liza betrays him, which is a very difficult thing for her to do.
0: Well, and I love how that's played with. uh, You, you start to think like, oh, is there going to be something, and then. A, a very small but important scene after he has has made the, this kind of offer to her of uh, uh i don't think you're going to be able to hit these certain sales but if you do you can kiss me anywhere on this beautiful body and what she does then in that moment which i won't say here and ruin for everyone but it's uh it was chef's kiss i absolutely loved the way that was played Good. it's Good. yeah it's fantastic. Um, yeah. you mentioned uh, that the that the narrative here is set in Florida. How did you uh, intentionally let the location in, in, inform the narrative?
1: I just seen some pictures of Florida, and it looked like a completely other planet to me. And it's it seemed so vivid and strange. The colors, in particular, of the buildings and the sort of the dress sense of some of the people who live there and the sort of very vivid blue sky and the palm trees and there was something really sort of slightly playful and broad about the whole world which i loved and it seemed to suit that world of farmer reps who were pushing out you know pushing beyond the boundaries to get what they needed to get so it felt like a very natural fit it's a very vivid landscape um it's very poppy it's very it's a little bit brash, in good ways. So all of that felt like it suited this um, low rent farmer world that we were creating. It felt like a good marriage um, to go to. Yeah, makes sense.
0: Um, it, I, I know, like at times I've been in the doctor's office. Uh, you see pens with pharmaceutical, you know, drug names on them and stuff. Um, but I didn't realize things like. Uh, like really what these speaker programs were. uh, And of course, we see office visits by the sales reps. um, So much stuff where where you get into the nitty gritty of uh, pharma companies and what they do to get doctors to uh, prescribe their medications. As you
1: were really digging into this, uh, like what shocked you the most? I mean, ultimately in the UK, we have a national health service. So the whole system is geared to fixing people. Um, and the profit motive is not necessarily writ large in that transactional process. We just want to make people yes. better where we can. So, what fascinated me is how when you introduce the profit motive to getting people well again, how it can sort of get out of control and get out of hand. So I was fascinated by that. And um, and actually, in truth, I mean Lidell, Dr. Lydell, who's our featured doctor. We tried to humanize him because we didn't want anyone in this movie to be a bad guy, um, to be a sort of out and out villain. Dr. Lydell, as an example, is he's lonely. He's going Mm -hmm. through a divorce. Um, He, you know, he's, he's looking for affirmation himself. He's, he's a kind of, he's a bit of a lost soul and, and Because of all that, it makes him vulnerable to these approaches by these sales reps, who see those weaknesses, see those vulnerabilities, and are able to exploit them and pull him into these programs. And with Brian Brian who plays Lydell, you know that's a tightrope walk of a performance because ultimately he's killing people by overprescribing, but we don't want him to be a monster. We want him to. There needs to be a poignancy and a sort of a sort of almost comic tragicomic qualities to the character um so you know ultimately for me it was fascinating that everyone's sort of a victim in this world ultimately not just the people who uh are prescribed these medications but also everyone sort of preyed on it in some weird weird way and that intrigued me that intrigued me as uh, as we approach the, the the filming of the story it's um yeah, and it's very different to the UK.
0: Mm. Well, I I, uh, I actually almost phrased my question as someone from the UK. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we were on the same wavelength there of just how uh, kind of wild the American healthcare system is, which uh, I'll have another question on in a second, because uh, I want to ask you with all of those, um, you know, the speakers, bureaus and, and all that stuff we see, was there any kind of like, was it a tricky balance at all to to ground all of that stuff in reality and, and really show how it happens? while also not looking like an exaggeration or like sketch comedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's a bit of a tightrope of a story. We didn't want it to feel too serious. We wanted to yeah. end the um, But all the things that you see in the movie happened, you know, one shape or another. So, um, and we may have been guilty sometimes of just, Enjoying it a bit, too much, you know. You mean and, like
0: like Chris yeah. Evans rapping, getting in a costume and rapping, enjoying I mean, that? You know, that's
1: that's based on a kind of reality because um, it's this Reps did dress up in a big sort of uh, fentanyl bottle and they rapped, so it's wow. that exists in the real world, and um, so that's based on a truth, and so it's some of the stuff you couldn't make up, um, and it. Yeah. it that's partly what appealed to it. And I guess if you know this is the first film I've made for a while that's a sort of I guess a drama. and mm. to sort of to 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 ultimately graduate to full-blown regular dramas, I need an intermediate phase where I do a story' <laughs> stepping a bit, stone. that's fine exactly <laughs> it has a bit of bonkers, bonkersness about it that has a sort of vivid characters and, Slightly larger than life, Floridian colours. Yeah. So that's my transitional sort of. Yeah, I'll get to a sort of. I'm sure I'll get to a kitchen sink drama next, where everything's a little bit more sort of muted. But for this one, I sort of to go from wizards to farmer reps felt like a sort of step. <laughs> ne- <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't know
0: that <laughs> much difference. It worked. It worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you even kind of have your own Voldemort here with uh with Andy Garcia's character. So it's it's fine, <laughs> it makes complete sense. Yeah. Um but, but quickly on that scene where, where Chris is you know performing and rapping, was that um I mean he looks like he like fully committed and leaned into it. Do you know it all? Was he was he nervous about it? Was he ready for it?
1: You know, he was um we 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 dropped that song on him because the song wasn't quite right. We had we had a few iterations of the song. And he he should have had three weeks or two weeks to prepare for it. And I every day I would say, Chris, the song's not ready. And he go, No problem, it's totally fine. And so we get closer and closer to the shoot, and I'd say, the song's not ready. And to the point where 24 hours before we were due to shoot it, I went to his trailer and said, Chris, this song is still not ready. <laughs> and go, "It's okay, it's okay." So he was extraordinary in terms of he literally learnt the thing overnight, and um, and a real, a real, you know, a real trooper in that sense. Because we just wanted to get it to an interesting point when he performed it, so we gave it to him really, really late. And he was very, and he was literally learning the lines off stage before he came on for that one because we dropped them on him so late. Uh, But he was so grown up about it and so unfazed by that, someone else, another actor, another movie star could have just said, look, let's shoot it next week or I'm not doing this anytime, sometime to prep it. He was really pragmatic and collaborative and helpful and he just went on stage and did it. And um, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, he, he's great in that, uh, Brian, uh, you mentioned he's, he's so great. Andy Garcia, um, playing a, a, a version of the, the doctor who founded Insys, uh, but he, he kind of manages to steer clear, at least on paper of, of, uh, company operations. Um, Andy's so, um, I mean, his character. Of course, he's he's uh, he has grief that he's dealing with, but also I, I don't know. Do we say OCD? Like, there's there's a lot going on with this guy as well that he handles with such a like quiet menace until it kind of starts to unravel.
1: Correct. Yeah, we were we wanted a human being who is not completely all there. He's a little bit sort of unwieldy and a little bit eccentric. Um, And Andy loved that opportunity to just sort of kick around who that character was a wee bit. And we had multiple, multiple takes with Andy where we would get different versions of Jack Neil. And it was part of his process. And I enjoyed the process watching him work through it, whereby we'd sort of see literally when I edited with Mark Day, my editor, different scenes with Andy in them. There were like three or four multiple personalities of Jack Neal, so we sort of built the character through post-production from all the wonderful things that Andy did. So he would there was, and it verged from the uber naturalistic, kind of grounded, rooted, real version of a human being to a total volcano of a uh, a total narcissist, and he was, and he enjoyed giving us those different versions to just say, here's another version. See what you think of this guy. And and out of that, we fashioned the character that you see in the movie, which is a human being, as you said, exactly. He's slightly unpredictable. Um, He's kind of oddly fragile, but he's quite explosive. And people are very wary of him. He's the boss and people are very, very kind of aware that he's a bit eccentric. (laughs) And you have to sort of tiptoe around him a wee bit and he can go off like a volcano at any point. And um, Andy loved doing that. And the lovely thing about Andy is at the end of each shooting day, he could finish at two in the afternoon and we'd still have eight hours of work. Rather than going home to prepare for the next day, he'd come back to set. He'd sit with me by the monitor and we'd talk about movies and we'd talk mm. about the scene and we'd talk about scenes he, he wasn't even in. And we'd talk about directing, we'd talk about acting. And it was it was mm. so lovely to have Someone of Andy's experience and yeah. kind of curiosity just around to talk movies as we were still working. And I'd say to him, there was one night where he finished at four in the afternoon and we were shooting till 12 at night. And he stayed till about 11.30 30 in the evening. And I said, Andy, don't you want to go home? To get ready for tomorrow. And he said, No, I'm cool. I'm happy. I'm here. And he would, and it, was, it was delightful to have him around.
0: Mm, love that, and then Catherine O'Hara just brings such a different, uh, a different energy. Is the word I will use <laughs> to to the proceedings? Um, was she was she kind of always on the wish list? How did you come to her?
1: Well, she's such a gifted comedian. and given that the tone of the movie um, required that skill set, it was great to have her as part of the troupe and the company, um, and so she sort of helps. Enormously, bring that element of humour into our story. And again, it, whenever you cast something, you're always looking to bring someone in that people don't expect. You know, it's a drama about the opioid crisis, so the last person you'd expect to cast is Catherine O'Hara, possibly. Um, and so it was, it was lovely to bring her in. And um, and I think she's, I I, I think she's so skilled. Uh, comedy and timing there's a beautiful moment where she dances into shot in front of andy garcia a Mm -hmm. swimming pool party and the way she moves is exclusively Chaplin-esque. and uh, she's a very yeah she's and it was she she was a lovely yeah lovely part of the company we had a great group actually Mm -hmm.
0: You sure did. you did indeed. Yeah. Um, I, something I want to touch on here, which which we've been mentioned a bit, you know, the American healthcare system. it's it was yeah. um so uh, just sad, really, to watch as you know, we're of course, Liza is seeing all these families destroyed because of what the drugs are doing to people, but yeah. she's facing her own uh, family emergency because of uh, her daughter's condition, which causes seizures. Uh, Medicare won't pay for the the safer, more expensive option, which by the way, have been very, um, Uh, I I've had that procedure that, that through the nose procedure myself, um, very glad I did not have to have a craniotomy, which is, uh, the Mm -hmm. other option here. Mm -hmm. Um, in building that in, uh, you know, of course I, I know that goes to speak to the, the dilemma that Liza is in, but, um, in terms of kind of, you know, playing that out and, and figuring out what, uh, the family situation was going to be, how did, how did you land on that specifically Were there other things you thought about?
1: Yeah I I um I loved initially before we even started building the script I was looking for a story about a single mother I was quite intrigued about building you know a, a story just seeing how a single mum deals with the world and so that n- inevitably um sort of fed into the process of developing the story so um I you know, I was brought up by my mum with my dad away quite a bit. And I saw the things she had to go with and deal with. and And I rarely see stories about a single mum. So I thought, well, let's celebrate a single mother in all the kind of challenges that they face. and um so, and in terms of the health uh, care story, the that the stuff that Phoebe goes through, we had some really wonderful advice from some proper doctors and Chloe who plays Phoebe was amazing she did lots of research uh, of her own on that sort of condition and and to the point where the fitting she came into when we were doing rehearsals and she said I've looked into this with my mum can I show you what's going to happen and tell me what you think and um they'd known someone who had had this condition and who had fitted. And Mm. I said, oh, great. Just, yeah, show me Chloe. And I was there with George, my DOP and a couple of other people in the crew. And she just, she went into this moment where she started to fit and we all went, oh my God, that looks so horrifying and authentic. Um, So we had lots of help um, to contribute to that sort of medical side of the story. Um, And... But it was the single mum side of it I liked. I liked the idea that you're dealing with a woman who's sort of looking for looking for affirmation, looking looking to sort of feel like she is someone in the world, but she's kind of fighting on her own. And I like. I was just drawn to that element of our story. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's incredibly fascinating, uh, and. I think that's all played out really well. I, I love what you do with with the use of narration as the action pauses and we have a second to like live in the moment and whether it's you know uh, emphasizing something absurd or for a bit of dark comedy or whatever. It's I, I, I love all of that um, and I think you just strike such a, a, a kind of a perfect tone here. So congratulations on the film and uh, highly encourage everyone who has not yet seen it. Uh, highly encourage folks to check out uh, Pain Hustlers on Netflix.
1: David Yates, uh, thank you so much. Great to see you, mate. Thank you very much. See you soon.
0: Well, uh, yeah. My thanks again to David Yates; such a such a great guy, and and uh, very nice speaking with him. Um, I gotta say, I really love Emily Blunt in this movie, Joey. And honestly, I love she and Chris Evans together. They have some really great chemistry. Um, that as you heard us touch on a little bit there, they don't quite go where people might hope or expect it to go. It's more of a uh, brother sister relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's great. I love her. I, I like. I don't think she can do wrong in anything.
2: No, she really can't. I mean, name a bad. Emily Blunt performance, it's, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. I cannot think of anything.
0: Yeah. We'll s- sit here in silence for five yeah. minutes, uh, trying to think of that. Um, I mean, and by the way, uh, one of the, the great snubs is that she did not get an Oscar nomination for a quiet place. Don't get me started. On yeah,
2: that. that's I truly, I mean, that's one of, uh, even among, I think Emily Blunt stands that is like an underrated performance of hers. I think people, again, it's like yeah. this whole well, thing. She won of, the SAG
0: award for yeah,
2: it. But I mean she and Sag loves her. I mean, they also nominated her for a girl on the train, which is a was a big shock that year too. So I mean, she is an actor's actor. People love her. And even when she has poorly written, poorly fleshed out characters as in uh as she does in Oppenheimer, <laughs> she does wonders Ooh. with it. So um yeah, yeah she she is I, I could watch her throw that um horribly placed flask that she has in every single uh scene in that movie <laughs> against the wall on a loop 900 times and i'd be like oscar that's the academy that's the academy throwing oscars at her
0: that's the clip that'll play at the <laughs> yeah make that yes, create that one yes. yeah uh <laughs> I will expect to see that on social media (laughs) tomorrow. Um, Yeah. By the way, folks, you can check out Pain Hustlers. Uh, It's in select theaters on October 20th tomorrow, and it will be available to stream next week, October 27th on Netflix. Uh, Well, Joey, I think that's it for this episode of The Awardist. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jared. I appreciate your time. And
2: um, as always, Stan Penguin (laughs) Bloom.
0: I I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Dang it. Uh, All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on X, formerly known as Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall and Joey. What's your handle? Where can they find you? I'm um, at
2: Joey Nolfe. which, Jared, I thought you would know that all too well by this point.
0: No, I went, oh, don't do it. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Karma will get you for that. <laughs> all right, guys, we'll, we'll see you next week on The Awardist and every day at EW.com. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.